is to look like. And, and early on in the story, Jesus gathered these guys and, and he called them apostles. Now, we have a lot of baggage connected to the term apostles. Um, you know, there's because of all the history of, of the church, you know, the, the whatever, Catholic stuff, apostolic succession, you know, Pentecostal stuff. There's all sorts of stuff connected to the word apostle. I don't know what it means to you. It probably just sounds really churchy. To Theophilus, it's just a common word. It just means sent one, a sent one. So Jesus picks out these 12 guys, calls them sent ones, and then doesn't send them anywhere. They, they keep following him around for a while until this moment. Finally, he's making good on the term apostle, sent one. And, and I don't want to overinterpret this passage, you know, I, because, you know, I don't want to make it too formulaic. I, I think that a, a, a faithful to Jesus life can happen where you live in the same house and, and, you know, stay there, live in the same home for your whole life and are a sent one without going anywhere. I think that's possible. All right. I'm, so I'm, I don't want to overinterpret this. You know, this in some ways is a unique time. Jesus is getting word out about who he is, and that's what the disciples are sharing. But I don't want to underinterpret it either. I think that this is supposed to be our, an archetype of the normal Christian life. He's giving them a preview of what it's to look like after he departs how they should live. This is a picture of what Jesus' followers do. And, and so if you take this whole story, but from, from the sending to the, the feeding of the 5,000, I think out of that we can, we can come up with sort of a pattern that describes the normal Christian life. We're called together, we're empowered, we're sent, we're regathered, and we're fed. And then it happens again. Sent, em empowered, sent, regathered, fed. So I just want to go through those ideas. That's the whole sermon. I'm going to go through those ideas. Called together. At the beginning of this, it says Jesus called the twelve together. I mean, they're already following him around. Why does it do that? But it's emphasizing. He brings them together. We are called not just to Jesus, but together. He calls us to him with one another. And that requires obedience. I mean, we're doing that right here. We, whatever else this is, we've come together to gather close to Jesus. That's our that's our hope. That's our intention for this time and this place. We gather near to Jesus. We hear his voice in the scriptures. We, we, we literally taste him. We ingest him at the table. We gather close to Jesus. Prayer, the teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship. This is our way of being called together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote that uh, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die, which is a striking statement since Bonhoeffer died a martyr's death in a Nazi camp. And that, that's a theme we'll hit next week. But the call of Christ is not just to come and die, it's to come together and die. <laughs> 
We come together into his community, into his family. That's what we're doing here. We have a long way to go. I think there's so much, so many ways the Lord could shake us and change us. But that's what we're doing here. We're answering the call. But when he calls them together, he empowers them. That's the next thing. We're empowered. All right, many times he teaches them when he gathers them. He's telling them stories. He's explaining the kingdom. He's always teaching. He takes a normal situation and he uses it to explain what his kingdom is like, what he's like, what following him is like. But in this preview of the Christian life for these guys who still don't understand a single thing, I mean, just wait as we go forward in, in Luke, they still don't really get what's going on. And yet, when he brings them together, the first thing he does is he gives them something. He gives them power and authority. Power and authority. I mean, it's, it's actually, it's an interesting sentence there. It's, it's not grammatically clear where to break it up. You know, it says he gives them power and authority, you know, to cast out demons and cure diseases. Is it, is it? power to cast out demons and cure diseases and authority to use that power or, you know, whatever. It's, it's power and authority, and that's what's happening when we're using it. This uh, idea of power and authority is, um, is a, a way that people described Jesus when they were first meeting him. And in in chapter four, Jesus is in a synagogue and he's teaching and then he casts a demon out of a guy and and the people are amazed in 436 at Jesus's power and authority. Who is this who operates with such power and authority? He teaches the people and they marvel that he teaches like one with authority. That's a way that they keep describing Jesus. That's how they're noticing him. What does it mean that he's teaching as one with authority? It probably means when he's teaching that he's not just quoting what the rabbis are saying, but he's like acting like he's directly representing. Here's what God means in the text. I mean, it's it's different when they hear him teaching and they notice his authority. It's the same two words. These are the two things that set Jesus apart from any other spiritual teacher, any traveling would-be Messiah. He speaks of the kingdom, and then he demonstrates it, power and authority. It's not just theory. When he gives them this power and authority, I, what did that feel like? <laughs> I, I don't know. I wish I could be there. It's, it's such a, there's, there's these moments throughout where Jesus feels power go out of him. Remember that in chapter eight, the woman touches him. He's in a crowd. He does, who touched me? I felt power go out of me. Before he preaches the sermon on the plane, power is going out of him and healing them all. I mean, he feels it. There's, what did it feel like? I mean, is it like the moment when Obi-Wan Kenobi dies and Luke is suddenly a better Jedi? <laughs> Sorry, Star Wars fans for probably butchering that. You know, I mean, or is it, let me just go to other sci-fi movies. Is it like the, you know, uh, uh, Neo getting trained in the Matrix by Morpheus? 
and he's a machine, you know, he's so good at everything. And, and then at the end, he stops the bullets and Morpheus says, he's starting to believe, you know. You know, is that what it, there's a, something that he feels, you know. Uh, you know, it, almost every, like, movie like that or these superhero movies, they, they all have a radioactive spider moment, right? I mean, they have, like, something happens and the, the power and authority comes and we, we, we put these images of superheroes onto this when what we should really be thinking about, if you just stay in Nerdville with me for a minute, is hobbits. That's what we should be thinking about. We should be thinking about the gathering, you know, gathered together, this group of people, uh, you know, wizards and elves and dwarves and hobbits and a couple humans, it's a normal gathering, and, and, um, and they're trying to figure out what to do with this ring. It's been discovered, and they form the Fellowship of the Ring, and there's these heroes there, but four of the members of the Fellowship are the last four people who should be there. They're, they're short. They don't know how to fight. They're, you know, all right, they can walk quietly through the woods. So what? I mean, that's, that's it. These guys are vulnerable, and yet they've been given the authority to be members of the fellowship, and one of them is even the ring bearer. They have to carry it to Mordor and destroy it. All right, enough of that. Aside from that, you are like them. You're like them. You're sort of going out into the dangerous world naked, and you don't really know how to fight with the sword or even pick one up. The normal Christian life is depicted here as continuing the liberating, restorative ministry of Jesus. And we don't get, the, we don't get to see what the guys say after this, like, what? <laughs> How do we do this? We don't get that. I mean, I would think that would be their first question. He says, all right, you have power and authority. Go out. Proclaim the kingdom and heal. Wouldn't you think their first question would be, how do we do that? <laughs> what do we do? But we're not given any of that. There's no you know, simple steps every time you encounter a demon to follow or the basic elements of healing prayer. Now, I, I'm not saying there's nothing to learn in these categories. It's important, especially for those of us who think that normal life doesn't include confronting those things. We need to unlearn some things in order to learn the truth about them. But Jesus just sends them out to do it. All, all we know for sure that they have is what they've seen him do. That's all we know for sure. Maybe he told them more, but when in doubt, imitate Jesus. And then he sends them out. He apostles them. He sends them out. They have a specific task to be performed within specific constraints. Proclaim the kingdom, cure diseases, and don't do these certain things. So the tasks, proclaim the kingdom. I mean, what does that mean? You know, for Theophilus' sake, Luke leaves out a, a, a detail that is highlighted in Mark and Matthew, which were written probably for more Jewish audiences in in this in Luke's telling of this story, um, he doesn't include that Jesus says go only to the lost sheep of Israel. Don't go to the Gentile towns. Remember, Theophilus is a Gentile, so 
he'd be perhaps confused or bothered by that. And by the time Luke is writing to Theophilus, Jesus has sent his disciples out to all of the nations, all of the Gentiles. And so it's okay to leave it out, I guess. The boundaries have been removed. But, but these guys are bringing together still in their minds their expectations for what the kingdom of God is and the weird things that Jesus says about it. They're still trying to figure it out, just like you. And Jesus sends them out to proclaim it. And so when he sends them out, you know, uh, perhaps the best thing they can think of is, hey, the, the anointed one, the guy who, who's bringing the kingdom, he's here. Like he's on his way to your town. He's, he's doing his thing in Galilee. He's starting a movement. The people of Israel have been waiting for this kingdom. So when Jesus says proclaim the kingdom, then at the, you know, in verse six, it says they departed and went out proclaiming the good news. That's just the same thing. The Israelites have been waiting for this good news. The Messiah that they've been longing for has arrived. That's the kingdom that they are proclaiming. But they're not just to proclaim it. They are to heal also. Now, I don't know. This I don't know if that sounds weird or normal to you. You've read about Jesus a lot. But for these guys, for Jesus to say, go out and start announcing the kingdom, you would expect that the activity would be and start recruiting soldiers. That's what you need to be doing. You need to start raising an army because we got to go and kick Rome out of Jerusalem. That's what the Jewish people would think proclaiming the kingdom means. But Jesus says, proclaim the kingdom. And the activity you're supposed to be doing is healing people. And the, the battle is not uh, on the same uh, battlefields that wars are fought. It's not over land and resources anymore. The battle is for hearts and minds and bodies. It has shifted it is about restoring people. That's what the normal Christian life is about. This is not a kingdom that will be led by a flawed king like David or Solomon. It's not a kingdom like that. It will be led by God himself. Jesus' ministry is not merely aimed at the mind and heart. He doesn't just have them proclaim the kingdom. He has them restore people. It is about our mind, heart, body and spirit it is about all of us this is a call to bring the freedom of Jesus to everyone that we meet our, our mission is not the success of a little church our mission is people's freedom that's our mission that's what they're sent out to do and and and, and to keep focused on that mission. He gives them some strange constraints, some restrictions that they have to obey. Number one, no luggage. You can't bring any luggage with you. Uh, when John Calvin is commenting on this, he, he kind of simplifies it. He says, oh yeah, this thing about no luggage and, and staying in one place and not leaving there. It's just Jesus' way of saying, it's a short trip, you're coming back soon. You know, if you pack, you'll stay 
too long. Um, if you, you know, if you plan to go from house to house, you can stay a week at one house, a week at the next house. But this way, you'll kind of wear out your welcome and leave and come back. Okay, maybe, maybe. I'm not going to, you know, I, I don't want to get in a fight with John Calvin. Um, but Luke's readers throughout the centuries have seen a bit more than uh, Calvin does here. Uh, you know, here's one commentator, Joel Green. He says, the 12 are not even to take an extra change of clothes, so to speak, trusting that God will provide not only the extra tunic if one is needed, but also daily bread. Listen to this. A more pronounced statement against the possibility of having a lively faith choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life is difficult to imagine. Jesus has given them constraints that keep them as the seed on rich soil. Jesus sends them out, in other words, in vulnerability. And I think that there is a, that is a key here. He's going to describe it later in chapter 10 as, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Sheep don't go among wolves. And that's what he is doing here. They go out with the expectation of returning to him but they go out with no choice but to depend on God alone. And it's not stated here, it's not described here, but I think that we can make a clear connection. I think there's a strong correlation in, in biblical terms between power and authority and vulnerability. And when we try to limit our vulnerability, the power and authority that Jesus offers to us is also limited. There's something about how those two things exist together. So if you find yourself wondering like, well, where's this power in my own life? My challenge to you is to risk some vulnerability. Give something away that you feel like you need. Share a part of your life that you couldn't imagine anyone knowing about. Give of your time. Spend time with people who make you uncomfortable. <laughs> like some of the people in this room. Like Pastor Mike. Maybe. I get awkward sometimes. I think there's a clear connection between these two. You know, there's this, I, I just heard this remarkable story of this woman who has a ministry in Africa and she, she disciples children and the children go into villages where missionaries have been driven out violently over and over again and the children just alone go in and start praying and interceding and the people who are most antagonistic to the gospel are the first to come and give their lives to Jesus after these kids have been praying. They go in in total vulnerability. Jesus warns us that if we do things in a way to reduce our vulnerability, a way to gain notoriety or, or wealth or whatever, he says, you'll have your reward. You'll get the thing you're looking for, but not the thing you need. The history of Christianity has a strong and consistent testimony that the church loses its power and purity when it tries to gain worldly power. It just does. Okay. So that's the first constraint, no luggage, be vulnerable. Second constraint, stay where you're welcomed. Uh, yeah, maybe it's about keeping our visits short, 
But I think it's another part of vulnerability. You know one way to be vulnerable? Contentment. Contentment. Being content, you know, who, who has God brought you into contact with? Who has crossed the path of your life? Are you content with that or are you looking for something else, something better, somewhere that can do? Do you guys realize that the fact that you are in this room together is just, it defies statistics. There are 8 billion people on this planet spread out all over the place. And there have been people living on this planet for so long, my goodness. And yet you are in this room with these other people. You could say that's random, or you could say every person that I'm in contact with in my life is a miracle. It's astonishing that these are the people that God has brought me into contact with. We are, we are sent out, but we're not supposed to continually strategize an angle and get to the better, you know, get the location, 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 get the better place, get the whatever. That's not what we're called to do. Stay where the first place that people welcome you. Stay there. Don't look for what's better. Be content and let that be part of the call to you. Unless, of course, they reject you. And then don't worry about it. All right, this could be Jesus saying, you know, pronounce a curse on that town. You know, knock the dust off your feet. Pronounce a curse on that town. They could be saying that. But at, at the very least, he's saying, it's up to God how they respond. Don't worry about it. Shake it off and move on. Some of the seed doesn't take. The farmer doesn't fret. Jesus takes it for granted that some, perhaps many, will not accept this message, will not like this news. And he says, don't take it personally. My college pastor, Ben, always used to say, no one, you know, no one would stand up out of a foxhole after a grenade land, landed near him and say, was it something I said? We don't take it personally. This is part of the work. Okay, so they go out. Herod hears about it. I'm skipping that part. Herod's like, what? <laughs> and then they're regathered. They come back to get, they, they come back and they tell Jesus everything that they had done. Uh, I, I just read the biography of John Adams. Um, it took me like two years, but I read it. Um, and before, you know, before the presidency was established, obviously John was the first vice president, but before that, he was the first, you know, one of the first uh, European ambassadors. He spent almost 10 years in Europe as an ambassador to France and the Netherlands and Great Britain. And he, he, here's the deal in the late 1700s, um, it's hard to communicate across an ocean. So John's over there, often for months, maybe a year at a time, and he hasn't heard anything from the people back in the States. He doesn't know whether he's doing what he needs to be doing, and he described, John was a, he wrote, you know, thousands of letters, he journaled every day. It was the lowest time of his life. He felt like he was just out on his own, alone. And that's not what Jesus is sending us to do. That's not what this is describing. This is describing a sending out and a regathering and a sending out and a regathering. 
We're not alone like that. The normal Christian life assumes that we regularly, intentionally return to Jesus. In fact, at the later sending at the end of Matthew, after Jesus' resurrection, what is, how does he finish that whole sending, the Great Commission? Remember, I'm with you always. You got a direct line. And when we gather with one another, we're even more with him. Where two or three are gathered, he's here with us. We see more of Jesus. Now, that, look, there are, there are lonely times in the Christian life. You know, writers call it the dark night of the soul. There are lonely times. That is normal. That's part of Christian growth. There are times that we feel alone and wonder where God has gone. But I think the normal Christian life assumes that we are called back together near Jesus. And we tell him everything that we've done. I love the imagery here. They've been faithful, they've been obedient, they've done the best they can with this. You know, as far as we know, they did what he asked them to do. They, they cast out demons, they cured people, they, they announced the kingdom. Now they come and Jesus, Jesus says, let's go deeper. Let's go off to a secluded place and be alone. Let's talk deeper about this. He brings them deeper in. There's something that happens when we're in that cycle. I think vulnerability and obedience do open up possibilities for deeper relationship with Jesus. And what happens? The crowds, you know, they've been out, these 12 guys, Herod has heard about it. The crowds are like, what is going on? And they follow these guys home. They follow them back. And so even when they're trying to hide with Jesus, the crowds come and Jesus doesn't say, okay, guys, you're up again. No, They've come near to Jesus. The guys have done their job. And Jesus starts to teach them. And Jesus starts to heal them. I mean, he spends all day, they're out in a deserted place, teaching and healing them. And they're just like, we want more of this. The normal Christian life does not assume that you are forever the mediator between your neighbors and Jesus. You are simply the delivery person. You, you go out, you tell, you show what he's like, and then they follow you back to him. And, and maybe back here, you can invite them, that's okay. I mean, that's what happens. I mean, these 12 average Jewish men, they've been doing amazing things as Christ's ambassadors. And then they follow you back. That's the goal. And so there they are, and the disciples are thinking practically, Jesus, it's late. These people are hungry. There's, no, you know, there's nothing to feed them. You guys, you heard the story. It makes sense. What Jesus says to them doesn't make any sense. It's the next sending. You give them something to eat. Uh, what? <laughs> well, we have enough for like two people. And there's 5,000 men, probably women and children too. Let's say conservatively 15,000 people. It's a giant crowd. You know, what, what do we do? I love that he says, you give them something. We just prayed that prayer. You, did you hear our prayers of the people? Let us be your body. Let us be your hands. Let us be your voice. Let us be your welcome. This is what, this is what Jesus is wanting them to do. You give them something. And they, you know, are practical again. We can't. We can't. We don't have Anything to give them. I mean, it's going to run out after the first couple people. I mean, if Jesus said, 
to Littleton Christian Church, which has considerably more than five loaves and two fish that we're supposed to feed Littleton, we would feel the same thing. Like, well, no, we don't have the means to do that. How, how could we possibly do that? Here's another act of vulnerability. What do you have? What do you have? I love that. that. This takes me all the way back to Moses, who's you know talking to a burning bush, and it's talking back, and it's telling him to go free the people. And Moses says, I can't, man. I, I'm not good with speech. I'm not courageous. And the bush says, what's in your hand? What's in your hand? That's such an important question. When the Lord says, what do you have? He's saying, are you willing to offer that? Are you willing to just use the thing that you have? That's part of the normal Christian life. And like manna and quail in the wilderness, Jesus feeds all of these people from five loaves and two fish. He, he gives thanks for it. He breaks it. He gives it back to them. I think that at that moment, it still looked like five loaves and two fish. Uh, as far as I, here, here's how I imagine the story. That they keep handing it out. They don't understand why they're able to keep handing it out. And then when they gather it back is when they're realizing what on earth just happened. It was almost an invisible, immeasurable miracle. Jesus throws a feast. He feeds them all, and that's what he does. Being fed by Jesus is part of the normal Christian life. We're gathered. We're empowered. We're sent. We're regathered, and we're fed. Friends, here it is. From one loaf and one well, a couple cups of wine. Jesus has been feeding himself to the nations for 2,000 years. Think about how that has multiplied. I mean, that's, that's the feeding of the 5,000 on steroids. What we're doing here on the other side of the globe 2,000 years later in a different language is the bread that he broke and blessed being multiplied out here is your manna in the wilderness. Here's your quail. Here is, look, here's our meager offering to Jesus that he blesses and gives back to us. Here it is. So, brothers and sisters, on the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Take this and eat it all. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. This is a sign of his grace, his provision, his power, and his authority flowing through us. Friends, I don't want to live that boring Christian life. I want to live this normal Christian life. I don't really even know how to do it. I'm so used to my norms. 
Maybe we can learn together. Maybe this can shake us out and show us what Jesus can do through us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this pattern. Would you show us how to follow it? Would you show us how to be sent ones ourselves, sent to our neighbors, sent to our people that we work with, sent to our classmates at school, sent, Lord, sent to proclaim the kingdom, to heal, to cast out demons. Lord, we receive your power and authority now. Please give it. In Jesus' name, amen.